let us turn our attention to the book of Acts. So make your way in, in your Bible to Acts. We are only going to cover three verses this morning. But before we do so, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you tremendously, Lord. And we are thankful for you. Lord, we're thankful that you've given to us your word, that you've preserved the, the testimony of who your son is and what he did in the Gospels. Here as we turn our attention to Acts, what you were doing in the, the early church and all the different adventures, doctrine, relationships, struggles, suffering, the joys, all those different nuances that we get to sit in for a long time, Lord. We love these texts because they, they tell us about you. They tell us about who we are in you. They tell us about your nature and your character. They tell us about your son. They tell us about the cross. They tell us about the resurrection. They tell us about life in you, serving you, what it looks like. In the, in the good times, and the, the rough times. Lord, so we're asking for your spirit this morning, for your spirit to speak to us individually, for your spirit to speak to us as a congregation. More than anything, Lord, we're asking that you'd have your way among us. We're asking that you'd build your church here at Calvary Chapel in Alpharetta. Lord, that you'd build your church in this community here in Alpharetta and Forsyth and Georgia and the United States to the ends of the world. We're asking that from this place, Lord, that you'd send, you'd send us to the, to the ends of the world, Lord, to proclaim your gospel to anybody who's willing to hear. But we're here this morning, Lord, to listen, to attend to you. So let your will be done. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Acts chapter 1, verse 1 says, I got cobwebs hanging from my glasses. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. There is a lot in here. We're just going to kind of walk through the generals as, as, a, as an introduction here. The first being the title so this document was given the title, The Acts of the Apostles. Uh, these are things that people added on later on to the documents. But when it's describing the acts, this word acts comes from the Greek word praxis. And this word means deeds. It has the idea of our activities, whether we're planning activities, whether we are undertaking those activities, the way of life in which we live. But it's, it's our deeds, it's our actions, it's our acts. But sitting in the Greek culture and the Greek language, this was a word that the Greeks would have used for their great heroes of the past. So if you're familiar with Greek mythology at all, those, those adventures, those undertakings that those heroes involved themselves in, these deeds were described by this word praxis. 
these heroic deeds. And that's why I ask you to, in, during greeting, to take the time and identify to each other who is your hero, who stands out in your mind and in your heart as somebody who has done something heroic, regardless of what that behavior is. Again, whether it's a personal relationship, whether it's Jesus Christ himself, whether it's a hero of the Bible or somebody of time past, who's your hero? As we walk through the Acts of the Apostles, there's a lot who complain about the title that it's very man-centric. Because ultimately, it's really the continuing acts of Jesus Christ himself. So when we talk about the heroic deeds, as we talk about Acts and the book of Acts, and as we travel through Acts, our attention needs to continually be upon Jesus himself. Because he is central to the message of the gospel. He is central to the worship of the church. He is central to all the different messages, the sermons that we're going to sit in as we travel through Acts. The activities of these early believers. He's central to everything. And the acts that he's performing, he is performing these things through his spirit in those who look to Jesus Christ through his name, through his resurrection for life, salvation from sin, salvation from death. Acts, the, the hero of our faith is Jesus Christ. And as our hero, we're told, turn your attention, hold your place here, but I want you to see this. This is a great verse. Turn your attention to Ephesians. There we go. The Ephesians are in Ephesus. Took me a minute. Ephesians chapter 2. And this is just as we just finished Hebrews where we had this, this foundation and an umbrella idea that Jesus is better. As we go through Acts, we want to have this foundational idea in regards to the acts of our God and his son Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit in the church. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Your faith, him calling you, drawing you to himself. This is not your own action. We are saved by grace and we respond by faith. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And here's our word. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And this is the idea as we are traveling through Acts, as we are traveling through this document, we are watching the workmanship of God. And this is, this is, a, this is the word where we get our English word poem from. It's poema in the Greek, that we are God's poem. He is the one that has written our lives. He is the one that is speaking to us. He is the one that is singing over us. He is the one that has created us in his son for good works before we were ever even created. And again, no, this isn't we're just little robots playing out God's divine game. It's he created us to have a relationship with him. He created us to participate in his life and in his light for all eternity. And we enter into that relationship through faith in Jesus Christ. So as we watch Jesus add to the church, as we watch Jesus build his church, as we watch Jesus through his followers preach the gospel, teach what he said, do what Jesus did, 
We're watching him work and we're watching him at work. Just like in, in your own life as you can stare at your own self in the mirror and you look at who God has been to you in history, you can see how he has worked in your life, how he has moved. And ultimately, even as you, you can turn back to Acts, but as you follow through in Ephesians in the chapter 4, this whole idea of God giving gifts to individuals, those individuals are using those gifts in service uh, to other believers. The, the goal of that gift is that each one of us individually and corporately would be brought into the fullness of the image of Christ. As we've prayed often at the end of, well, it's in the middle of Ephesians chapter 3, that idea that we would be filled with the fullness of God. As we are watching Christ work in his church in the early church, as we are watch, watching Christ work in our congregation here, as you are watching him work in your individual life, the, his goal, his work, those things that he's prepared beforehand, is that you ultimately would bear the image of the fullness of Christ. Now for none of us, we are not going to attain that in this life. We'll attain that in the future when we stand before him. Yet at the same time, we submit ourselves to his, ultimately, his heroic deeds in our lives. And in his, in his, his deeds towards us are heroic indeed. So we look at the author of this, the book of Acts. This is an anonymous document. Nowhere does it say that this was written by Luke. Uh, it's the, towards the end of the second century is where the first writings that we have that attribute the book of Acts to Luke. And this is what we do know is that the gospel according to Luke and this document, the Acts of the Apostles, they were 100% for sure written by the same individual. Its language, its emphasis, even the claim here at the beginning. Early on before we had our Bible in you know, this one document as these different documents are being uh, distributed to the church and the culture of the time, uh, Luke and Acts were combined together in one document over time. The four Gospels that were collected, those were combined in the one document. Paul's writings, as they were collected over time, were, were put into one document. And again, then over time, as these all come together, have formed the, the Bible that we have before us. But this is what I want to sit in in regards to Luke. We know from Colossians, and these are all testimony coming out of Paul's mouth in regards to who Luke was. Paul calls Luke a physician in Colossians, the beloved physician. So to be a physician, to be a doctor in this day, there's a specific Roman school that they had to go to. There's training involved. The interesting thing, again, this isn't like just voodoo, witch doctor kind of stuff. Modern medicine really didn't develop beyond the days of this time, the medicine of this time that Luke would have known until the late 1700s, early 1800s as we start stepping into more modern, modern science. So again, as a physician, one of the ideas is Paul had an issue with his eye. Paul had... This, I mean, Paul was beaten severely multiple times. We don't know what kind of health issues he may have had. So calling Luke this beloved physician, there's an idea that he became a traveling companion of Paul because of Paul's health issues that he had. At the same time, Paul and Philemon calls Luke a fellow laborer. So it's not just that Luke is there to attend to Paul's physical needs. 
Luke is there participating in the mission of the gospel going into these different communities. And as we travel through the book of Acts, Luke, as the author, ends up using this language in chapter 16, we. All of a sudden, the author of this document shows up in participation in the events that are going on in Acts. So Luke is a traveling companion of Paul and others. One of the interesting things is, is Paul's last letter in 2 Timothy, he says that everybody has abandoned him, everybody has left him. The only one that is with him is Luke. So there in Rome, as he's in jail, there is Luke still as a fellow laborer, as a physician, as a friend. So we only know little snippets about Luke's life. But this is, as I asked you who your hero was, did anybody say Luke? Anybody? I think we're going to change our opinion of, of this man as we travel through this document. But I think we'll change our opinion of him right now as we sit in the reality of what he did. So as we talk about Jesus as our hero and doing heroic deeds, look at, look at Luke's life. Look at what he did in action in his life. We're told right here at the very beginning, the former account I made, O Theophilus. So Luke is the one who wrote the gospel according to Luke. The beginning of Luke, he gives this, this same type of introduction that he is writing this to most excellent Theophilus, this title given to this man, Theophilus, that we'll sit in in a minute. But Luke is writing to a singular individual the information that he knows about who Jesus Christ is. But he knows this information through the pursuit of investigation. It's very clear that Luke was an individual who personally interviewed Mary. He knew Mary. How did he know the information at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke? All those details that are in there. We believe and we think that he could have only received that information from, from Mary herself. Through other relationships, he would have been collecting this information over time. As we sit in the book of Acts, we believe that it was written right around 63, 64 A.D. Paul's head was removed from his body in 66 A.D. So at the very end of Acts, we have Paul there in prison in Rome. We believe from church history that he was released before he was rearrested and executed. So that pushes this document somewhere to the early 60s. That means that since the resurrection of Jesus Christ to the time that this document was written was roughly a 30-year period of time. And over that 30-year period of time, and that means that the Gospel of Luke would have been written earlier than that, over that period of time, Luke, as a follower of Jesus, has been collecting information about who his Savior is. Now, personal question. Whether you've been saved for a year, Jesus is still foreign to you, you've been saved for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, could you sit down from the notes that you've collected, from the information about who your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is, could you sit down and pen a document like the Gospel of Luke? Now, I'm not given like a heavy head trip of you have the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in his life, all the activity of God going on as these documents are being written. 
But just think about what it is that Luke did in his life as a real human being. He took the time to write not just the gospel of Luke, but these acts that we're going to sit in to one person. That's a heroic deed. Luke didn't sit down knowing that we, 2,000 years later, were going to be sitting here studying and reading his writing. We're not told in this document that he is writing it to a community of believers. We are told that he is writing it to a singular individual, Theophilus. What was his relationship with this man? Some think that Theophilus was the, the benefactor behind this, that he's the one that's financing Luke's research, that he's financing Luke to be there, to be available to Paul as a physician. Physicians in this day and age, often they were owned as slaves. They didn't have the medical availability that we have to go to different doctors, so the, the upper class of the time often owned individuals as personal doctors. That's an idea about who Luke is, that he might have been owned by Theophilus. He's called most excellent Theophilus in the Gospel of Luke, which this is, a, this is a title that is attributed to governors of the time. So this is somebody who is high up in civil, the civil authority of Rome. Theophilus, his name means lover of God or friend of God. It's the uh, Theo would be God. Uh, uh, Philea would be, you know, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love here. So it's this brotherly love is that word. So this, this compound word, either lover of God or loved by God, friend of God. But here, Luke, this is, this is one of those, like, trying to get to know this man and sit in understanding of the document that we are going to study that gives us information about who our Lord and Savior is, gives us information about the early church. This is a, this is a heroic deed that he did in the name of Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to the glory of God, written to a singular individual, information that he would have collected over 20 or 30 years of his life, written to encourage just one other brother and sister. Uh, well, brother, because he's a man. But anyways, taking that time, how long would it have taken him not just to compile the information, but to put it all down, to actually send it? There's an issue, not an issue, but an idea in Luke when he's called Most Excellent Theophilus, that title is missing in Acts, that Luke... The gospel is there to, uh, to proclaim to Theophilus the truth of those things of which he's been taught, that he became a believer. I think he was already a believer, but anyways, the idea that the title not being here, that kind of title was not used between brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. Those titles that you'd have in the culture lost themselves as the church gathered together in the name of Christ because ultimately... Jesus is the holder of all titles. This former account, this idea as we sit in the, in the Gospel of Luke, but just in this paragraph here, look at everything that it's talking about in regards to Jesus Christ. All the things that Jesus began to do are there recorded in the Gospel. The information is what Jesus did. So as we sit in all four of the Gospels, as we look into history, what is it that this man did in his behavior? Where did he travel? Who did he talk to? Who did he touch? 
these miracles that he performed, his death on the cross, his resurrection. This is all information that we get out of the former account that we get out of the gospels, those things that he did. What is it that you remember about what Jesus taught? So as we sit here, as Luke as an individual wrote this document and that I would ask you, if you were just to sit down with a blank piece of paper, a blank ream of paper, a blank computer screen before you, what are those things that are going to pour out of your mind and your heart about who your Savior is, about what your Savior taught? When you sit there and just flip through the headings and all the headings of our, the, you know, the Bible, these are things that are all added later, the verses, the chapters, the numbers. I've got all these little bold section titles in my Bible. You sit there and you flip through the Gospels and you look at what it's saying that Jesus did and what it's saying that Jesus said and the taught. What Jesus taught is radically different than what we're taught in the world. What Jesus taught is radically different from what we're taught in most of our congregations. As Jesus is teaching the individuals, as he is proclaiming the gospel, as he is proclaiming the kingdom of God, often what he is teaching is giving truth, the right interpretation to what God declared in the Old Testament. You have heard it said, but I say to you, the authority by which he taught. But the difference, the contrast between you've heard it said this way, this is what the Old Testament says, this is what God declared, but what you have heard said has been interpreted by man for you in your culture and in your context. And now Jesus comes along and says, but I say to you, here's God's heart, here's his declaration." Here's his plan, not just for the nation of Israel, but for all of the nations. Here's who I am as the Messiah. This is what you're looking for, but who Jesus ended up being was very different than who people were looking for in a Messiah, in a deliverer. Yes, there are certain facets that were true, what they believed, what they understood, but many things. Jesus is there correcting the human heart and the human mind, the religious heart and the religious mind. When it comes to us as we gather together, he teaches us about leadership. He teaches, teaches us about our behavior, who we should be praying for, who we should be serving, how we should be serving, how we, how we should be responding to the poor and to the weak and to the widows and Rather than pursuing those, those things in life that solely interest us and that solely elevate us and that solely reward us, he demonstrated for us he, what he did and what he taught was a life of sacrifice. Again, this ultimately becomes why Jesus is our hero. And I'm, I'm one of those, I sit in all the whole male soap opera of the Marvel comics and some of the DC stuff where the hero that comes in is usually just killing people left and right, correct? I mean, these are when we sit there and we watch the action movies, when we watch the heroes in movies, we read about the heroes in books, we'll sit in war stories. Often, it's revolving around the life of an individual who is sacrificing themselves, but at the same time, they're lopping off a lot of heads to go with the activity that they're doing as a hero, as a savior. But when we look at Jesus as our hero, he's the one that, he's the one that is, he's being arrested. 
He's telling his disciples that he has the ability to ask his father to send, what was it, 12,000 legions of angels? This innumerable mass of angels. He was capable of asking his father to come and deliver him and kill everybody. But as our hero, what did he do? He didn't come to lop off heads. He came to teach truth. He came to live truth. He came to reveal the nature and the character, the mind, the action, the very words of God. He came to display all of that in truth for us as our hero. So as we sit here in this, all that Luke wrote before, here's a bunch of what he did. Here's a bunch of what he taught. Here's how he suffered for our namesake. And not only did he suffer through pain and ultimately that death on the cross, what's going to be central as we travel through the book of Acts is Jesus' resurrection. How he presented himself to, how he appeared and revealed himself to the disciples. Ultimately, this is what Jesus is commissioning them. You witnessed my life. You witnessed my death. You witnessed my resurrection. Now go and tell the world as we travel through each one of the scenes in the book of Acts, our attention will continually be brought to the name of Jesus Christ. There is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. The name of Jesus. And then the reality of that statement, the power of that name, is through the testimony of the reality of his resurrection. That will be the repeated theme as we travel through Acts. Whether they're talking to the Jews, whether they're talking to the Samaritans or the Gentiles, whether they're talking to the poor, to the rich, to all these different leaders that we'll see throughout the book. It's the name of Jesus Christ. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here we are told that through many infallible, decisive markers, fixed markers, fixed proof, these things are, they're unassailable in argument. This is what we saw in regards to his resurrection. In this time period, we're told that Jesus is giving commandments to his disciples, those who he has named as apostles, that he is sending out on mission for his namesake. We'll sit in some of that next week. The content of what Jesus is talking about during these 40 days is that he is, as he's speaking orders, as he's speaking commands, it is revolving around the very kingdom of God. And this is what he's speaking to his disciples before he ascends. And again, we'll sit in the, the ascension next week. As we go through the book of Acts, even as you sit in just the word of God in general, as we talk about the name of Jesus Christ, who he is, what he did, this is, this is the central idea, is that the world needs Jesus. In the world's need for Jesus, Jesus is continuing. So this, this whole idea that who Jesus was in the former account is the same Jesus that's going to be discussed in this current account as we travel through Acts. That his, who he is and his nature and his, and his character is 
continuous. The one who was crucified is the one who was resurrected, is the one who ascended. And Jesus is not missing from the scene. He is at the right hand of his Father in heaven. So turn back just a few pages to John chapter 16. In John 16, verse 5, this is the night before Jesus is arrested, teaching the disciples. He's talking about his ongoing activity in his followers, even after he departs. John 16, verse 5, but says, Now I go away to him who sent me. I'm going back to the Father who sent me in the first place from where I came. And none, none of you ask me, where are you going? Because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Why are you going? You know, there's, there's confusion here. There's lack of understanding. There's sorrow. Why are you going away? Jesus says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage, to your profit that I go away. Why? For if I do not go away... The helper, the Holy Spirit, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Just if that's confusing to you, as the Holy Spirit is sent, as we respond to God through faith in Jesus Christ, we are told that we receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes up residence within us. We become the temple of God, not made with hands, but the building that he is building, that he is going to convict the world of sin. Before you, he's go, before you initially responded to faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit revealed your own sin to you, revealed the consequence of your sin. Before you responded to Jesus, you knew that if you died in that moment, you would have lived in an eternity apart from the God who made you and apart from the God who saved you. This is the Holy Spirit's activity in this world today. He is convicting the world of its sin. This conviction, this exposure of righteousness is always pointing to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the righteous one. He is the one who is the source of righteousness. He is the one who righteousness flows out of. He is the one, his righteousness is the one that is granted to us. And the testimony of that reality is his ascension back to the Father where he is seated right now, where we do not see him currently. Of judgment, the Holy Spirit is convicting this world that judgment has already occurred. The ruler of this world who is Satan, who is the devil, who is the dragon, who is the serpent, all these different names that we have in the Bible, this being, this creature has been judged. Verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, 
The spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit is not a force. He is not an energy. He is not an it. The Holy Spirit of God is a person. He is a he. When he, the spirit of truth, has come, here's his activity in our life. He will guide you into all truth. Holy Spirit's not going to guide you into a lie. He will not guide, guide you into a path where you should not be. He will guide you in truth daily. He will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. Told in different places, as God, the Holy Spirit, has the mind of God. He is able to convey to us the mind of God He's not speaking independent of God the Father and God the Son, Jesus. They are God in unity. What he hears, he will speak. He will tell you of things to come. He will glorify me. And he will take of what is mine and he will declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said he will take of mine and declare it to you. So as we sit in the book of Acts, especially as we continue on next week, this is going to be the command and the order for the apostles to wait for Jesus to send to them the Holy Spirit, to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, for them to be empowered by the Holy Spirit so that they can be witnesses of his resurrection, of his person, of his teaching, not just in Jerusalem, but in Judea and Samaria and ultimately to the ends of the earth, even here in Alpharetta. Again, like I said, as we travel through this, the, the, the constant drumbeat is going to be you need Jesus. This world needs Jesus. It's a document of this outward expansion. The, the gospel begins to be proclaimed there in Jerusalem. There are specific nuances to the early church there in Jerusalem. Through persecution, it ends up going out into Samaria. So there into, uh, you know, pretty much the middle of Israel. Samaria is between uh, Jerusalem and Galilee and the north. Ends up going into Asia Minor, ends up going into Greece, ends up going into Rome as it's there in Rome. You could say by the end of the book of Acts, it has gone to the end of the earth in the sense of that that's what would have been considered the end of the earth at this point in history. It was a hub and all people came to Rome and all people were going out from Rome. This document ends as it's talking about this outward expansion the activity of our hero through his followers. It is going to also provide for us a defense and apologetic of the gospel. And this is what this, is what this means. And is, again, as we sit in, in what occurred in early church history, wherever the gospel of Jesus Christ goes, it causes upheaval in every culture. So when we go through the book of Acts, the gospel caused upheaval in the culture of Jerusalem. The religious leaders and the civil leaders of Jerusalem opposed the gospel of Jesus Christ. As Paul, as we watch, as Paul ends up taking the gospel into Asia Minor, what happens to Paul? Is he just welcomed in with the red carpet? He's stoned, he's beaten, he's persecuted, he is jailed. 
as he goes into these different communities, when he takes the gospel into Philippi, do you remember what happens in Philippi? A woman gets delivered from a demon. This woman was a source of money for her owners. Those owners, those merchants didn't like it very much. So they stirred up a crowd to get them arrested, to get them beat. Wherever the gospel goes, it causes upheaval. Jesus, from from a political perspective, Jesus is seen as somebody who is subversive to the authority of any ruling government. Why do you think that China does not want the gospel in China? Why do you think North Korea doesn't want the gospel? Why do you think Iran doesn't want the gospel? What harm is there in telling people a message about this individual? What is it about his followers, those who respond to the gospel, what is it about the, that man Jesus and his followers as Christian, what is it about them that the rulers of this world are fearful of? And that's a big reason behind why this document is being written. Because very clearly, through the actions and activities, through the deeds of the early church, whether it's through Paul, or through Stephen, or Peter, or John, or Barnabas, all the different characters that we're going to see in the book of Acts, as they go from community to community, are they trying to stir up strife? Are they trying to bring up a rebellion against the rulers of the day? What are they proclaiming? Proclaiming the truth. They're proclaiming the source of this creation, the God who created the heavens and the earth. They're proclaiming through the Holy Spirit the conviction of sin. Do you remember before you responded to the gospel, or even now, do you like anybody to point out your mistakes, your failures, where you're wrong, where you're off? Anybody like it? Anybody want to say, please? Come tell me everything that's wrong with me. Is that an enjoyable thing? Where the gospel goes, there is an aversion to it. Don't tell me what is right and wrong because I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it. But in this document, in the the proclamation of the early activity of the church, here's what the church is engaged in in mission. Proclamation of the gospel, of hope, of life, of deliverance from death. So in all these different interactions between believers of Jesus and the different authorities that we're going to watch, we're going to watch them in submission to Jesus, in I'm not there in here in this community to hurt, to harm. I'm here to share life and to share hope. We're here to proclaim the gospel. This is something that we're going to watch over and over again. The very end of Acts in verse chapter 28 verse 22 when Paul finally shows up in Rome he's meeting with there with the Jews there in Rome and the Jews are responding to him this is verse 22 says we desire to hear from you what you think for concerning this sect we know that it is spoken against everywhere so again, this document becomes this, this apology, apologetic, a defense for who Jesus Christ is, that as we proclaim the gospel, we're not trying to subvert governments, but what we are attempting to do is proclaim the truth 
And that each individual, as they hear the gospel, has the choice whether they submit to that or not. And here's the, here's the pain of the gospel message. Here's the pain of the gospel even in our own culture and as it goes into other cultures. The gospel of Jesus Christ demands the breaking of all other authorities. So the truth is, in many ways, the gospel responding to Jesus as your king It is subversive to your worldly kings. Because what does the Bible tell us to do? Tells us to submit to governing authorities. But when those govern authorities direct us to do things in opposition to our king, what does the gospel tell us to do? That we submit to our one true master, Jesus, not to any worldly master. So when our worldly masters tell us to go and do things that are in opposition to our one true master, shepherd, savior, Jesus, things that are in opposition to his name, ultimately we are seen as subversive. We are seen as being tumultuous in that, uh, that environment. If you sit in the politics of today, the church is used as a pawn. Those who are operating in a sphere, in a government sphere, that is not the kingdom of God, uses, attempts to use the kingdom of God to do what it wants to do. And this isn't to ruffle feathers, it's just reality. The Republican Party is not an ambassador for Jesus Christ. The Democratic Party is not an ambassador for Jesus Christ. The Supreme Court of the United States of America is not an ambassador for Jesus Christ. Our country is based upon, is founded upon the word of God in so many ways. Its morals, its ethics, its laws, its sense of freedom, its sense of heroes and bravery. The freedom that we have in this country, so much that we have available in just the the history and you sit in the reasons why the structure is there in the first place is based upon many human beings relationship in submission to who Jesus Christ is but as an entity as a government entity the United States of America is not an ambassador for Jesus Christ many many of its citizens are The nation of Israel is to be an ambassador for the one true God. In many, many ways, it doesn't reflect the nature and character of who God is at all. We are told that all the nations of the world are in rebellion against God. We are told that when our God comes back as king there in Revelation 19, all the nations of the earth, except the nation of Israel, are gathered together in war against Christ and in that war the antichrist the beast the false prophets these individuals are captured cast into this lake of fire Satan himself is bound for a thousand years and all of those nations that are gathered to war against the true king Jesus we are told that they are executed with the sword that proceeds from his mouth. So when we sit in the the document of Acts, 
It's recording for us information that we would not have at all about the early church unless, unless Luke performed this heroic deed of writing this to Theophilus. We would go from the Gospels to the book of Romans and we would wonder, who's this Paul guy? Right? We wouldn't know anything about his history. We wouldn't know anything about the early church, the good things about the early church, the bad things about the early church. The earliest information that we would have in regards to the followers of Jesus Christ, many of its activities would have already been blunted and distorted by men and women attempting to put some kind of man's order and tradition to the structure of the body of Christ. Because we start to see this as the church goes on, the early documents that we have, as the gospel goes into different communities, different kinds of structures are established. And what Acts ends up becoming to us is this call to return to our roots as believers in Christ. What did the early church look like? And this this is what becomes difficult in our culture. How many of you hear that constant call? We We need to be doing what the early church was doing. We need to look like the early church. Anybody hear that? I hear that. I want to respond to that. But we can't go back 2,000 years ago. This is not our culture. This is not our time. But what we get to do is we get to sit in the testimony of who Jesus was, what he did, what he taught, his resurrection. We get to sit in the testimony of here is after he ascends into heaven and he gives the Holy Spirit, here is the activity of his believers, of his followers. This is the message that they proclaimed. Here's what their community looked like. So the call as we respond to the gospel, as we respond to be obedient to what the word of God describes to us what a community of believers looks like, where do we go to? Do we go to the culture or do we go to church history or do we go come all the way back here to the Bible? So what was the early church involved in? And we're going to watch this over and over again. They're praying together. Unified in conversation with God together. Devoted to that prayer. We're going to watch them go. Whether it's to their specific community or whether it's to a faraway place. We are going to watch them take who they know Jesus to be in their fear and in the power of the Holy Spirit. We're going to watch them proclaim Jesus missionally to their communities. We're going to watch them fellowship with one another, like true fellowship, true sharing in life. What does it mean for us in this room? Some of you have been here a while. Some of you may be brand new. What does it mean to participate in the life of the other men and women in this room? What does it mean to share in the joys and the hardships and finances in service? What does it look like to study together, to pray together, to work together, to follow Jesus together in community? These are ideas that we are going to continually be called back to as we go through Acts. Worship team, come on up. As we end the book of Acts, I want you to turn to chapter 27. This is one of my favorite verses. 
in the Bible. This is one of my favorite verses in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 27, verse 25. It's an exhortation. Therefore, take heart, men and women. Why? I believe God that it will be as it was told me. These words are coming out of Paul's mouth as he has been given a direct message from God in regards to a storm that they are in on a ship. Paul is telling these men that he's on this ship with to take heart, to be courageous, motivating them through this declaration that I believe God who has spoken to me that it will be just as it was told me, this information that he has conveyed. But as we sit in the gospel according to Luke, as we sit in these acts of Jesus Christ through his spirit, through his believers underneath the the authority and control and direction of the almighty God, as we sit in the different sermons that are going to be conveyed, as we sit in the different cultures that the gospel goes to, as we watch those cultures respond to who Jesus Christ is, even as we can sit in this in our own life, in our own hardships, in our own trials, in our own questions, we have this exhortation from the word of God right here out of the book of Acts. Take heart, be courageous, Turn away from your fear, turn away from your worry, turn away from your anxiety, turn away from your culture. Break the cords of the enemy that are in your life. Break the cords of religion that are in your life. Break the cords that family or friends or a workplace may have in your life. Have a complete and total breaking away from this world and lay hold on to the name of Jesus Christ. Because it is his name that has been given to us. The only name where there is freedom from all of the bonds and the chains and the prisons of this world. Where there, there is true freedom from the own, my own wicked heart, this wicked man that I am. The only man, the only being, our very God, where there is freedom and victory from the death that each one of us is going to cross over at some point. Take heart. Take courage in that man. Why? Because I believe God that the words that are in this document from Genesis to Revelation, I believe that it will be today and forevermore just as it is told me in here. Amen. Let's worship.